And let's pray. Father, help me now to speak in a way that makes it easy for all of us to understand what you have to say to us in the scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a sermon about God's work in the life of Naaman the Aramean. Naaman the Aramean could have shared many stories from his life, no doubt. Stories of childhood, of his mum and his dad, of his boyhood doings and adventures. Uh, Stories of coming of age, of learning a way of life that is to be a soldier in his case, of courtship and marriage. Stories of success and promotion, leading Aramean forces to victory, becoming great in Damascus and close to the king. Story of illness as well, of infirmity, of disease, developing leprosy. This is not uh, Hansen's disease, which we know as leprosy, but in the Bible it denotes a serious skin condition. The commentators say it like psoriasis, an autoimmune disease, chronic ebbs and flows, painful and socially stigmatised in that time and place. In Israel it made you unclean. We don't have any of the stories those stories anyway, from Naaman's life. What we do have is this story in 2 Kings 5, the story of Naaman's healing and of his conversion to faith in the Lord. And even though Naaman lived about 2,800 years ago, I hope you agree with me that his story still shines vividly today. So today... What I want to talk about is firstly God's work in the life of Naaman the Aramean and secondly God's work in our lives. God's work in Naaman's life was a transformative gift. Let's meet him. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. And when you think of Aram, don't think of a kind of modern nation state. Think of a cluster of city-states northeast of Israel linked by history, language and culture. Naaman was from the Aramean city-state of Damascus, which was strong at that time. This is, you know, Damascus in Syria these days, same, same locale. And this Naaman was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. For you see, the Lord, the God of Israel, is the true God of every nation as Naaman will himself come to believe in this story. And the Lord gave Aram victory in war, and he did it through Naaman and his prowess. And this is the Lord's work in Naaman's life. Also, he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. He was strong, he was successful, he was highly regarded, and he was diseased. He was marked, he was unclean, he was unhealthy. Naaman had a lot, but he didn't have everything. He also had a need, a weakness, a wound, a grief. Verse 2, now bands of raiders from Aaron had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria... 
he would cure him of his leprosy. Now here we meet a very different person to Naaman, not a strong, successful, free and high status person. On the contrary, a captive, foreign, young person, a slave. It's called a Josephine, a kind of female version of Joseph who has, was taken into slavery in Egypt. But this Josephine is taken into slavery in Aram. This girl exhibits two qualities. Firstly, faith in God's prophet. And secondly, care for Naaman, her master. Verse 3, she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. The fact that this girl could wish Naaman to be cured is notable. Despite being kidnapped and enslaved, which was no doubt not on her list of life ambitions, she is not bitter and sullen. But she is able to care about those she had no choice but to serve. Perhaps it also speaks well of the character of Naaman and his wife that this girl in their service could wish them well. The fact that she is so confident in Elisha's capacities is also notable. Was this naivety, credulity, or did she have some first-hand experience that made this a well-placed faith? We don't know yet. Verse 4, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Naaman is somehow convinced that this is worth pursuing. Desperate times, perhaps call for desperate measures. And his master, the king, agrees to back Naaman in this quest to go and see the prophet who is in Samaria. And so Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Perhaps the king of Aram assumed that you know, the king of Israel would think of referring this request to Elisha, the prophet, who was in Samaria. But a moment of comedy comes into this story, because the king of Israel has no such thought. He reads the letter, he dramatically tears his robes and says, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. Elisha hears of the king's tantrum and gets matters back on track. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so now, commander stands at the door of prophet. Commander has horses chariots, entourage. Aramean lackey in uniform knocks on door. Servant opens door, talks with lackey, bobs head, shuts door. Naaman waits. Waits for the prophet to come out and stand and call on his God and wave his hand and cure him. Something dignified, something powerful, something instant. What happens? Door opens. Small messenger boy with no shoes comes out. Trots up to Naaman and says, Go, wash yourself in seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. Squints at Naaman, turns, trots back, shuts door, silence. 
Naaman gapes, waits, turns and rides away and grows angrier and angrier. What is this? I didn't come all this way to be treated like this. Where is this prophet who can't stir himself? The Jordan River? Strip off and get in the filthy waters of some foreign drain? You've got to be kidding. Naaman's servants went to him gingerly, no doubt, and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? And this is the way it is with God, isn't it? You think, I've come a long way, you know. I admitted I needed help. I've humbled myself. I've made a long journey. I've brought plenty. I'm willing to pay. Isn't that enough? You ask, why make me strip down and wade into a river? Why this last obedient self-lowering? But God does not negotiate terms. He sets them. And he doesn't say, you want my help? Well, go and do something grand. Write a novel, run a marathon, start a charity. He says, listen to my prophet. Wash and be cleansed. Naaman accepts God's terms in the end. He went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a young boy. Naaman has got what he came for, what he wanted, he wished ardently for, that is restoration, health, wholeness and cleanness. But Naaman has gained something else as well, a realisation and not simply a restoration. And Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. This is a spiritual conversion, a rather large one. Because Naaman lived in a polytheistic time. There were many gods. Nations had their own patron deities. Aram had Hadad Rimon, the god of rain and thunder. Israel had Yahweh, the Lord who made heaven and earth and all that is in them. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, everyone had their patron deities. These were all regarded as real and all in kind of competition just like peoples and nations. But Naaman became a monotheist. There's one God, he says. There is no God in all the world except in Israel. He is the true God, the only God. Naaman had a profound encounter, that is, in the waters of the Jordan. He was touched by something, by someone who left all the small G gods for dead. He was convinced that the capital G God had shown himself. And so he embarks on a life of grateful discipleship. The first mark of this is he wants to give a gift to the prophet. Look at all the stuff I bring, let me give you something. But the prophet won't permit it. Naaman has to receive his restoration as grace, as favour, as unearned, as undeserved, as unrepaid, just received. 
Secondly, being told that he cannot give a gift in return, he wants to take enough of Israel, the soil of the land, to Aram so that he can stand on the soil of the Lord's land when he sacrifices to the Lord. Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. He is going to be uniquely devoted to the Lord now, and he will do everything he can to to symbolise, remember and establish that connection to the God of Israel. Thirdly, he wants to be forgiven for an outward show of conformity to Rimmon worship when his king requests it. Verse 18, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing, when my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow down there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Now, given the way that Israel could only sacrifice to the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem with the approved priesthood, and they were roundly condemned for worshipping any other gods in any way at all, you might think that Elisha would say, sorry, sorry, Naaman, that's not the way this works. You, know, you have to sacrifice at the temple. You, know, you, can't, you can't go into the temple of Rimen anymore. Sorry, mate. He doesn't say that, though. He says, go in peace. Why peace? Why? This is a puzzle. Is it because Naaman is not becoming a Jew? He is not entering the Mosaic covenant. He's not being circumcised. He is not keeping the law. And so he is instead going to be some kind of Gentile worshipper of the Lord. Is this why Elisha is more relaxed about this? Or is it because Naaman... Elisha knows is truly a worshipper of God. His heart is with the Lord and not with Rimmon, whatever it may seem like on the outside. Because to the Lord, it is the heart, perhaps, that is most important. Is that the reason Elisha says go in peace? Or is it because Naaman recognises that it is wrong to bow down to Rimmon and seeks pardon for doing it in his far country And Elisha knows that pardon is there with the Lord. Whatever the answer, which we are not told, it is certainly accommodating of the Lord to Naaman and his request and his circumstances. That is the story. What then about part two, God's work in our lives? There are, I think, many connections between this story and our lives. The dynamics in many ways are still the same. For God goes before us as he went before Naaman. He gives us all our success. And perhaps he has put someone like little Josephine, the slave girl, in your life who addresses you at some key point, your point of need, point of question. Why don't you look into Jesus? He can help you with that, whatever that is. God goes before us. Also, God still sets the terms for us to come to him. Jesus said, the time has come. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. We might like to say to ourselves, I'll come to God through nature. 
I'll come to God through meditation. I'll come to God through love and kindness. I'll come to God with great gifts. I'll come to God in the way that I choose. But Naaman had to wash in the Jordan. There was no other way. And we have to repent and believe the good news, the good news about Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. These are the terms. This is how we receive the gifts of God through his one and only Son. God sets the terms for us to come to him. He doesn't negotiate. We accept it or we don't. Wash and be cleansed. Believe and be saved. Thirdly, God still gives us more than we are after. Naaman was after healing. He got a life exchanging relationship with the Lord instead, as well as healing. Perhaps you are or were after something from God. Maybe it was some kind of healing. Maybe it was meaning in your life or comfort for some loss or connection because of some loneliness. I don't know. But whenever the Lord gives us these gifts, he gives us himself and he takes us for himself as well. He asks us to recognise his unique divinity. Naaman said there is no God in all the world except in Israel. And we are called to confess that there is no God in all the world except the God who is in Jesus Christ. God still calls us also into a life of discipleship. Once we realise there is no God in all the world except the one who is in Jesus Christ, it is time to give up all our other gods. These days, we don't worship Rimmon. Nobody is going to lean on your arm to bow down in Rimmon's temple. Last week, if you were here, I suggested that temples we build these days are temples to the human spirit. The museums and art galleries that contain our masterpieces. The sporting stadiums where we roar at our prowess and our triumphs. The skyscrapers where we generate our prosperity the cinemas where we star in our stories, the music venues where we sing the songs of our lives. In these places, there are certain truths that must be repeated, certain figures who should be acknowledged and certain others who should be deplored. There are certain values that should be affirmed and certain flags that it is good to fly, certain things that must not be said. Now, much that all our, of all this that our society asks us to affirm and to honour is good. And we can embrace it wholeheartedly because there is still well, a ton of Christian sensibility in our society's outlook. But there is also a lot of human self-worship that is ultimately rebellion against the worship of God. And there may be times when people kind of lean on our arms and expect us to bow down to this. There is a great tradition of Christian refusal to join in the worship of other gods, even the God of the human spirit. There's a great tradition of Christian refusal 
say, to sacrifice to the emperor of Rome, even if that meant going to the lions. Naaman knew it was wrong of him to bow down in Rimmon's temple. May the Lord forgive your servant for this. So I think we can ask ourselves, are there things that we are expected to do to conform to our society that we should not do? And if so, what are those things and how can we handle them? Do we do them and ask for forgiveness? Or do we refuse whatever the cost? These are real questions and real issues for our discipleship. And I hope that you're thinking about them and perhaps talking about them when they come up in life. Because what we want is for our lives to accord with our confession. There is no God in all the world except the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you go before us and put in our lives people who draw us on the path to you. Father, when you set the terms for us to come and receive the blessings that you have for us, help us to be willing to humble ourselves and to embrace the message that we must embrace and to wash and be cleansed, to believe and be saved. Lord, after we take on the life of discipleship that follows, we pray that you would give us wisdom and perception to know how we should live in a way that means that our confession is in accord with our lives. That there is no God in all the world except you, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.